0: It's easy to lose heart either through ignorance of what God has revealed about prayer. Sometimes you can lose heart in unbelief. You don't have a promise that God has given that he really wants you to claim. But sadly, too often, we lose heart because it is hard work. And because of that, prayer tends to be our last resort instead of our first response.
1: Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, we are in our series titled, The Prayer That Gets Results, as we explore the dominion of faith in James chapter 5, verses 16 through 20. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues in the book of James.
0: The lips and the heart are to be connected in scripture. He's describing a desire or pray pray, uh, uh, in earnestness, uh, the, the, the desire and the will of our heart to bring something to the living God. And if our hearts are continually bent in God's direction, then we're gonna be talking with God. How often do you talk with God? I hope is a way of life. I took a study break in the middle of the day. I'd been studying for about seven hours, and I said, okay, I I gotta clear my mind. I went out and cut the grass for two hours, and you know, it was a great prayer time on my lawnmower. Lord and I had great fellowship. We need to be in constant, habitual, continual, unceasing, unending prayer. And if our hearts are bent towards God, they will be. And so he's saying, don't lose heart, keep on going. Why would he say don't lose heart? prayer sometimes can be nothing short of hard work. Remember what Paul wrote to the church at Colossians chapter 4? He spoke of the necessity and the labor that comes with prayer. Listen to these words. He said to the Colossians, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Devote. Then he spoke in verse 12. Epaphras who is one of your number, in other words, he's a member there in your fellowship. That's the Epaphras I'm speaking of, he says. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul says, there's a man in your fellowship who's with me, because it was a common name. He wanted to let them know which Epaphras he was speaking of. Who always earnestly labors for you in prayer? It's hard work. And by nature, we tend to be lazy. And because we lack discipline sometimes, and we just give up, we lose heart, and we stop praying. It's easy to lose heart either through ignorance of what God has revealed about prayer. Sometimes you can lose heart in unbelief. You don't have a promise that God has given that he really wants you to claim. But sadly, too often, we lose heart because it is hard work. And because of that, prayer tends to be our last resort instead of our first response. And so notice how the parable ends here in verse 18. It's critical. Look at chapter, uh, verse 18 of this chapter in Luke. However. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So the parable concludes with a question that can't be divorced from the context. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. What has he been discussing? He's been discussing his return from heaven. And of course, when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back to a time of spiritual apathy, spiritual corruption, unbelief, apostasy, and wickedness. He just likened his return in chapter 17 to the days of Noah. That will be days of lawlessness and violence and sexual immorality, as Genesis indicates. And he also likened his return to the days of Lot, which, of course, were days of sexual impropriety and perversion, homosexuality. And we would say transgenderism today. All part of the package, both of which are spoken of in Scripture. And, of course, when Christ came back in Noah's day or excuse me, when God came in Noah's day with the great flood, there was only eight people who were alive, who were saved from the great flood. Now, there were people during the years and decades of his preaching who were saved. We know of some, they're recorded in Scripture, but they were dead by the time the great flood came. They'd already gone home, so to speak, with Jesus, to use New Testament terminology. But on the day the great flood came, there were only eight believers on the whole planet. And on that great complex we call Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around it, there was only three individuals who were rescued. You say, what's your point? And by the way, so the vulture metaphor that Jesus gives at the end of chapter 17 in verse 37. There's judgment coming. Don't lose heart. What's his point? As we move to the end of the age, things will not get better, things will get worse. And so in 1 Timothy 4, that speaks of latter times, he speaks of doctrines of demons. I hope before we begin our next book of the Bible, it's not gonna be the very next sermon, but maybe in early September, I'm going to preach a sermon on the doctrines of demons that are so prevalent in the days in which we live, God willing. And then 2 Timothy 3 speaks of the last days. In both chapters of Scripture, speak of the perilous times of the dark, wicked scene. And so what does that mean? Men will lose heart. People's, believers' hearts will even grow cold. They'll be like the church at Laodicea. Do lukewarm Christians pray? Ha, huh, not on your life. Watch over your heart with all diligence because from it come the issues of life. We need to guard our hearts in these days. And prayer is one of the greatest Christian privileges that God has given us, but it's also one of the greatest Christian failures. Remember, James has already said in chapter 4, you do not have because you do not ask. And so God commands us to pray. Or to put it here in the context, I'm back in James 5 of this paragraph. When you are suffering, people need more than your sympathy. They need your prayer. When someone is sick, they need more than your pity. They need your prayer. When someone is corrupted by sin, they need more than your condemnation. They need your intercession. And so James wants our prayer life to be effective, which leads me into the next point. Since we're all sinners and we all stumble in many ways, answered prayer involves a confession. And since we can all get discouraged and lose heart, answered prayer involves a command to keep on praying. But third, answered prayer involves a condition. It involves a condition. Now, James has already taught us in this epistle this critical principle concerning a condition for effective prayer. If you remember in the opening chapter, he said in James chapter one and verse six, that our prayer needs to be done in faith without doubting. He must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Likewise, if you remember in chapter four and verse three, he said, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. But here James gives us another condition. Answered prayer is described as effective prayer. In other words, it's only effective prayer, what well, the King James translates effective fervent prayer that gets answered. Effective prayer, two words in Greek. The King James trying to capture this word effective, They say effective fervent. It's difficult to capture with a single English word. So while we're on this condition concerning effective fervent prayer, I think it might be helpful to pause for just a moment and to see what Jesus says about effective fervent prayer. The half-brother of Christ, Jesus had the same mother as James, who writes this epistle, but Jesus had no human father, but they're half brothers. Go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. You really need to turn there. I'm thrilled to see so many of you bringing a Bible, and if you don't own one, you should come to meet the pastor, and you will, be, you will receive one. Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus underscores four critical dimensions for effective prayer. First in Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6, on how to pray without being hypocritical. Look at Matthew 6, verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Well, you notice verse 5 says they love to stand and pray. You might want to underline that word love. It's the word agapao, for God so loved. It's used sometimes of God's love. Sometimes it's just used of a willful decision that men make. They love their evil deeds. Same word. So it's not always descriptive of God's love. Well, these men willfully love to pray. You see, the problem is that they do not love prayer nor do they love the God to whom they are praying. What they do love is the attention that prayer brought them. And of course, there's nothing wrong with standing when you pray. There are numerous instances in Scripture where God's men and women stand when they pray, the Lord Jesus included. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, uh, the average posture of a Jew in the first century was standing. In fact, to this day, most Jews pray in that way. They stand and they stand with uplifted hands. And if you went into a church service in the first century, they'd stand up and pray. And I don't think it's by accident, when we went to the Ukraine, every time it was a time for prayer, people stood up and they prayed. We brought the Ukrainian pastors here, their very first trip to America. What did they do? I said, let's pray, and everybody else is sitting, and they stand up. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with standing up, but that certainly is not the only position for prayer. For that matter, there's nothing wrong with standing up in the synagogues in praying as the Pharisees did, because the Bible teaches that God's people are to pray together, and the synagogue, the assembly, is where God's people met. For that matter, there was nothing wrong with praying on the street corner if their motivation was to carry God's name and God's glory into the public arena. Now, here in the model prayer, the Lord Jesus taught us that we're to pray corporately. Do you remember that? He didn't say, when you pray, say, my Father. But when you pray, say, our Father. That's corporate prayer that he is underscoring. And so clearly from Acts and from the instruction in the model prayer, there's nothing wrong with public prayer unless, unless, unless it's done for the applause of men. So Jesus taught if prayer is to be effective, it cannot be hypocritical. But also it needs to be personal. Look at verse 6. But you, by the way, the key verse in the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter 5, where he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never see the inside of the kingdom. So all the way through that sermon, he says, it is written, it is said, but I say, I say, and so here he is saying, but you, you're to be different from the Pharisees because he's going to show them that if someone really meets the living God, they have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. See, the real test of your prayer life is not what you do in public, but it's what you do in private. And God knows that Pharisaism is far from dead. If the only time we pray in a week is when a pastor says, hey, will you come and pray at the end of the service for us? We're going to have a time of prayer, and that's your prayer for the week? That's Pharisaical kind of prayer. That's not what needs to be true of us. We need to have a personal private time with God in prayer. And sometimes when I've led the prayer meeting, I'll say, this is not the time to catch up on your personal prayer life. So just make your prayer to the point where we can hear it so that we can agree in our hearts. He says, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. Now, your inner room might be outside. When you study the prayer life of Christ, most of the prayers that he did were done outside. Your inner room might be a rooftop like Peter there in Acts 10 as he's praying. Your inner room might be your automobile during your lunch hour. Your inner room might be a literal closet that you climb into to shut out the whole world. But the real test is not what's done in public, but what you do in private. And Jesus taught that if prayer is to be effective, it can't be hypocritical. It needs to be personal, but he also underscored it needs to be thoughtful. Look at verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. The word Gentile can refer to someone who's not a Jew, or it can refer to synonymously with a pagan. And so some English translations, instead of translating it Gentiles, which is what the Greek text does, they just translated pagans. Don't pray like a pagan. And of course, the word Gentile and pagan was synonymous. Why? Because most Gentiles were raw pagans in that day. His point is, don't use meaningless repetition as the pagans do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. You might wanna underline or circle meaningless repetition. It's the Greek word badalagao. It means to stammer. It almost sounds in Greek like babble, and so the Net Bible translates it babble. The Greek word has this sense of blah, 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 blah. And Jesus is changing gears here to tell us about another common abuse in prayer. If we are to have effective fervent prayer, then we don't want to be like the hypocrites who misuse the purpose of prayer, but we also need to know that verbosity is another misuse of prayer that we think because we are praying this long prayer and using all these words, that somehow that is more spiritual and going to move the hand of God. Now, understand God's not against a long prayer. If you remember in Luke 6, 12, Jesus spent the whole night in prayer. That was long. You ever spend a whole night in prayer? I've only done it a couple times in my life when I was in college. <laughs> the whole night in prayer, though, there have been times when we've gone through real struggles in the church and I'll get up at 3 a.m. and uh, I'm just so burdened, I can't do anything but pray. But Jesus spent the whole night in prayer. For that matter, there's nothing wrong with repeating a prayer, because Jesus modeled that for us. Remember, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and three times he repeats himself. Matthew records, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. For that matter, neither is he speaking against persevering prayer. He's just told us in Luke 18, 1, that we are to pray at all times, that we're not to quit, we're not to lose heart. But what he is condemning is people with these many words who are verbose, but the lips are not connected to the heart. That's the real problem that he's highlighting. And while we're here, let me say you don't need to pray like a theologian or poet or some scholar. Some of the most earnest prayers I hear come from the newest Christian. They don't know all the lingo yet. When I became a Christian, it was still in vogue. I was 18 and I went to my first evangelical church in Worcester, Massachusetts, and everyone in the church prayed in Shakespearean English. And I just couldn't pray like that. It was a carryover from the 17th and 18th century because Shakespearean English, King James, was the English of the day, and people just kind of were trained to pray that way. And I thought, I I don't even know the lingo. (laughs) I was having real difficulty. So understand it's not the language of your prayer, it's not the length of your prayer, it's the earnestness, it's the heart of your prayer. And let me also say that when you pray, remember that you're praying to a person. Don't use God's name like a punctuation mark. Lord, we thank you, Lord, Lord, that we can come, Lord, into your presence, Lord, that you care about our needs, Lord, and we're here today, Lord, to plead with you, Lord, so that we can live for you, Lord. Do I say Audrey? Would you make me lunch? Because if I make lunch, Audrey, I'll make a mess, Audrey, out of the kitchen, Audrey, and I know that I'd rather not make a mess out of the kitchen, Audrey, and I'm a lousy cook, Audrey, so Audrey, would you make me lunch? I don't speak to her that way. Neither do you speak to God that way. Slow down, think, maybe it's a nervousness that drives that sometimes. Where the mouth is running, but the heart is not really engaged. Now, Christ's statement here in verse 7, he is really underscoring and exposing the folly and the sham of thinking like a pagan. We're not to pray like a pagan because pagans have a false view of God and they think that somehow the mechanics... And the statistics of the prayer are going to move God's hand. And that's what I was really trained in as a young Roman Catholic. So, you know, pray 10 Our Fathers and 20 Hail Marys and three acts of contrition and boom, 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 boom. I thought somehow that was going to move God. It doesn't. If prayer is to be effective, it cannot be hypocritical. It needs to be personal. It needs to be thoughtful. And it's not done to inform God. Look what he says here in verse 8. So do not be like them. Do not pray like the non-Christian Gentiles who thought that they would be heard for their many words. And why not? Because we do not have that kind of God. Because that's not the God of the Bible that is revealed. So we do not do as they do because we do not think as they think. On the contrary, notice, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. He's not ignorant. We're not there to give him a lesson to inform him. God knows everything. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? He's not ignorant of what is on your heart. You say, then what's the point in even praying if he already knows? Well, you don't pray to inform God. You don't pray to impress God. Nor do you pray somehow to excite God by your many words, you know, because he's reluctant and somehow you have to urge him to move. No, it's a privilege to pray. We have the opportunity to fellowship with God. It's in prayer that we learn the goodness of God. It's in prayer that we sense the presence of God as the Spirit of God prays through us. And it's in prayer that we can claim the promises that he has given us for whatever it is that we are praying for. It's in prayer that we can praise and worship God. It's one of the greatest privileges, not to mention that he allows us to participate in the ruling and the administration of the kingdom of God through prayer. So back to James chapter five. We're thinking about effective prayer and I thought it would be helpful to pause and to see what the half brother of Jesus said because this was a man who grew up in that home with the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now I can give you in one simple word why it is that much prayer is not answered and it is simply the word sin. Sin. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, we know by nature, Paul says it in Romans 3 and verse 10, and he's quoting the Old Testament, there is none righteous, not even one. So we need to ask a critical question here. Is the apostle James speaking about positional righteousness, what we call salvation, justification? Or is he speaking about practical righteousness, experiential righteousness? Well, certainly we need positional righteousness to see our prayers answered. Remember what Solomon said in Proverbs 15, 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Solomon is contrasting the Old Testament believing saint with the raw pagan of his day. In New Testament terms, Solomon would be contrasting the born again person, or the person who's only had a natural birth, only one birth has never been born again. And if you've never received Christ as your personal Lord, then there's no possible way that you are deemed righteous in God's sight. You become righteous when there's a and a moment in your life when you admit your bankruptcy to God and you put your full faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, period. That's something that is then given to you. Remember what Paul said in Romans 5 and verse 17. He speaks of those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ. When you receive the gift of righteousness and it's gifted to you, you don't earn a gift you receive it, then you are declared righteous. You are given positional righteousness. And so Paul can say, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The Father made Jesus, who is sinless, to be sin on our behalf. He bore our sin in his own body on the cross so that, Paul writes, we might become, because we weren't before, the righteousness of God in Christ. Everyone within the sound of my voice, You are either in your righteousness, which is like filthy rags, making you by nature a child of wrath, or you have been gifted with God's righteousness. You have been given justification. You say, well, which one is James referring to? Practical righteousness. You say, how do you know? The context, it's clear. Who is he writing to? save people. He's writing to believers who are children of God, his brethren. He's writing to people who have already been trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so he wants them to make sure that their heart is clean, that they can approach the throne of God with a sense of boldness. You know, very often we take those verses that God uses to describe his people out of fellowship and we dump it on the unbeliever to say that God doesn't hear and answer their prayer. Verses like Psalm 66, 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Notice the psalmist does not say, if I sin, the Lord will not hear, because James has said we all sin, we all stumble in many ways. But rather, if we cherish, as the ESV renders it, if we harbor, as the net translation puts it, then Adonai will not hear. Isaiah drives home the same truth to believing Jews. We can certainly apply this verse to the loss, and it's a legitimate application, but don't miss the original context. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The problem was not God's strength because his strength was not diminished. The Lord's hand, Yahweh's hand is not so short that it cannot save and deliver us. Neither was the problem of God's knowledge like he didn't know what we were going through. He didn't understand the needs and the challenges that we have. That is his ear is not so dull that he cannot hear. He can hear because he's omniscient. He can do because he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. The problem was not God's power. The problem was not God's knowledge. The problem was not God's care. The problem was sin. Our iniquity. Now, understand, you cannot sever an eternal relationship with the living God. I'm not saying that people who say you can lose your salvation are heretics, but it's a heretical teaching about 10% of the body of Christ say that you can lose your salvation. They're dead wrong. That was not introduced into the six, until the 16th century. It's, it's bad doctrine. But understand, once saved, always saved. And if you are saved, your life will change. And if your life hasn't changed, I meet people all the time, oh, yeah, you know, I got saved when I was 12. Yeah, I've been living with this guy for 10 years. And, but, you know, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. mm mm-hmm. really? You'll know him by their fruits. But if you are saved, you cannot sever an eternal relationship. The one who believes has eternal life, but I tell you what you can sever, your fellowship with God, your intimacy with God, and your power to pray with God and to move his hand.
1: Today, we have seen that answered prayer involves a confession, a command, and a condition. Please join us next week as we conclude our series on The Prayer That Gets Results. If you have enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 015. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to Search the Scriptures.